Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I want to look into a passage today as we consider the names of God. Uh, God reveals something about himself. Uh, Jehovah means I'm the God who reveals. The name that we're looking at today comes in a very specific situation that if I was put there, I would consider it hard to obey God. I'm just going to be honest with you. This would be one of those commands that comes from God that when God, if God were to give it to me, I would wrestle with following him. Uh, You probably have had similar circumstances in your life as well, where God has asked something out of you. There's an act of obedience that God is looking for from you, and you just on the initial look at it, you think, you know, that's just a bridge too far. That's too much that you're asking me to do. The guy that we're looking at today is a guy named Abraham, and he may have felt this way as well. We love it when we receive blessings from God, don't we? But what would you do if God wanted one of the blessings back? That's what we're going to consider today, or at least seems to want it back. We learn about God's name, Jehovah Jireh, what we just sang about in the biblical story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac on an altar of sacrifice. Uh, The root, by the way, for the name Jireh means to see, but beyond that, it also means to provide. Two parts. So on the one hand, you have God that sees in advance what the need is, and you also have God who in advance is providing for the need that he sees. Jehovah Jireh. And this is, the, this is important, and especially if you're a guy like Abraham who's being asked something pretty big. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 22, let me just read some of this and unpack it and see what it is that the Lord wants to teach us this morning. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham. So obviously he's getting his attention. He calls out his name. Here I am, he answered. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now stop there for just a second. Because you need to remember, the first time that God told Abraham to go was before this. And it was when he told him to go, that was to leave his home in the Ur of the Chaldeans, which means you're talking about a Babylonian area. I want you to leave this place. And he says, and I want you to go to a place I will show you. Now imagine that you get this call from God and he says, I want you to go somewhere. What do you think your first question might be? Where do you want me to go? What God says is, I want you to go somewhere. And as you get up in the morning, I'll tell you which direction that's going to be. How many of you would be satisfied with an answer like that? Usually we like all the details in advance, including God's 401k options for us as we go. We like as much detail. You know why? Is because it makes obedience easy. You give me all the information and that's going to make my following you really easy to do. You know why? Because now I know what I've signed up for. I know what I'm getting myself into. That's why we like as much information as possible. Have you noticed this though? Life doesn't actually work like that. A lot of times you have to make decisions with not very much information. But what if, what if all the information that you had at the time was, God is on your side? Is that enough information? Well, for Abraham, you got to understand, this is, this is pretty much an incredible act of trust on his part. 
Because here in Genesis chapter 22, earlier it's like, I want you to go somewhere. And now he says, I want you to go somewhere. He's heard this before. Paul Copan said this. He said, you need to understand there's a connection between the call, which actually was in Genesis chapter 12. I want you to leave this place and go to a place I'll show you. There's a connection between Genesis 12 and what you see right here in Abraham's obedience in Genesis chapter 22. Because the firmness of Abraham's faith was being tested. And this moment would shape the thinking and the identity of future generations of Israelites, not just him. It was impacting entire generations of people. And here was the simple request of God. I want you to give me what you love the most. That was the request. I want you to give to me what you love the most. Now, Isaac, just so you know in this story, Isaac is probably a teenager. You don't need to be thinking he's a baby. In fact, in the narrative, he walks up the mountain with him. He's a teenager, but he's also the child of blessing. God has given this promise to him that from this child, he was going to bless the nations as the stars are in the sky. That's a lot of stars, by the way. This kid is the child of blessing, the one through whom God was going to do an incredible work now imagine being Abraham and saying, take your son up on this mountain and sacrifice him. Probably right there you're going, I'm trying to figure this out. I mean, this child is the child of blessing, but I don't understand how he can be the child of blessing if he's dead. How does that work? You probably would have felt the same way. But did you notice in Genesis 22, it said it's a test. Now how many of you love tests? Get those hands up everybody. You love math, you love history. I'm looking at the students right now. How many of you love those spiritual tests? At that point, you're like, I'll take math and history. It was a test. Last week, last week, the Israelites faced a test, something that happened a little bit later on in Scripture from what we're considering today. They faced a test after passing through the Red Sea and after they were delivered from Pharaoh's army, they go into the wilderness for three days and they don't have any water. These people just wanted some Aquafina, and they weren't getting it. And then they finally get to a place called Mara where there is water, but the water was bitter and it was undrinkable. You know, it's like God's teasing you. Here's something, I can't have it. God purifies the water so that they can drink it. Moses, who's leading them at the time, is the only one that's actually crying out to God saying, would you please give us some help here? Everybody else is just chewing Moses out. What are you doing leading us out in the wilderness for these three days? What kind of a leader are you? Right? And Moses is like, Lord, a little help here. And he purifies the water and they were able to drink it. But they didn't just stop there because he carries them on to Elam, which was the next stop. And it says that there were 12 springs there, which by the way, there are 12 tribes of Israel. There were 70 date trees. There were 70 elders of Israel that were appointed by Moses at that time. You see it right there. God has provided but they had to go through the bitterness to get to the blessing. They had to go through the trial to get through the promise. In both the Old and the New Testament, the words that is translated test, whether it's in Exodus as they were leaving or it's Abraham right now in what we're considering, it means to prove something by a trial, to prove it. It's on to, people aren't wondering anymore, it's shown, it's demonstrated. And so when God tests his children, so for example, when God tests you, his purpose is to prove that the faith that we say that we have is real. And it proves something to you 
in the test and it proves something to those around you through the test. They see and you see a faith that is real. It shows we are his children. And it also shows that no trial is going to overcome the faith that we have. They're also designed to reveal something to you about God that you previously did not know, at least through experience. Some things that only experience can teach you. And here, Abraham is facing, let's, let's be honest, a pretty difficult test. I, some years ago, I was looking in Genesis 22, and I gave this example. I said, that would be like, asking me to take Avery, who is my oldest, and to sacrifice her. Take, take your child, your favorite child. Avery gets home from church that day, and the only thing that girl heard was, so I'm your favorite child. I mean, one of four, right? One of four. So they're going up on the mountain and Isaac says in verse seven, you know, they get up to the top, Isaac's looking around, he goes, well, uh, I don't see the provision. Now that's probably gotta be an awkward moment. You know, you got the firewood, right? I see the wood, but uh, where's the lamb? I mean, where's, where's the offering that we're going to make? And there they are standing looking around. And then there's this powerful promise in verse eight. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them continue to walk on together. Notice that in verse 9 of chapter 22, he prepares the altar. Verse 10, he takes the knife at this point to sacrifice his son. Do you think Isaac has figured things out yet? He's the guy. But in verses 12 through 14, something is revealed. It says, then he said, don't lay a hand this is an angel of the Lord. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. And so today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. How about that? Isaac is sitting there in a moment going, that was close. Abraham, by the way, when it says he will go, you have to understand that the Hebrew here is really interesting. His guts are turning over. He is distraught by what God has asked him to do. Sometime in your life, you might get distraught by something that God is asking you to do. It doesn't mean he's not asking. But here you see it. The Lord has provided the provision of God, by the way, is right there on the mountain with Abraham and Isaac. The other thing that I found interesting about the story is apparently they don't see it. You know, you're building up this wood pile. It's like, well, Isaac's time to get over here and over there in the thicket, you have the provision of God. Something that for whatever reason in Genesis 22, these guys aren't seeing it. And it might be possible, and I'm just saying possible, that they didn't see it because God didn't want them to see it yet. Maybe that's why. But there's a part of the story that we need to focus on to make sense of what's happening here. And that's to go back into verse 3 of Genesis 22. Because it says this. It says, Abraham got up early in the morning. Well before the sacrifice. Well before going up on the mountain. 
He gets up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, and takes with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place that God had told him about. Did you notice what, it, what you see in verse 3? Right after a tough command, which is sacrifice your only son, Abraham immediately gets up and does what the Lord was commanding him to do. Just like in Genesis 12, when he's leaving his own place, he's leaving his home, he's leaving everything that he knows, he's leaving the comfort that comes with it, he says, go to a place that I'll show you. And Abraham says, let's go. And he gets up and he goes. Do you see any hesitation there? You see struggle, but do you see hesitation? You don't. And now in Genesis 22, you see struggle, you just don't see hesitation. Better to be struggling in the center of the will of God than having it at ease out of it. And he says, let's go. Because God will provide. That was his expectation. Even if, even if this boy dies, somehow he's walking back down this mountain with me. God is going to do this. What if, I mean, what if Abraham had saddled the donkey, got the firewood, got the helpers, and left without Isaac? You know, I mean, he obeyed some of it. He just forgot the most important part. And for some, our following God is focused on the parts we did do and so much less so on the parts we didn't. He was all in. In other words, Abraham wasn't partially obedient. And the other thing was for Abraham is even in understanding the command of God, he didn't see that following God wasn't worth it. In fact, he saw that it was. It's worth it. See, fully following God is what offers the full manifestation of God in your circumstances. When, like Abraham, you're all in, not towing in. Abraham was willing to trust God with Isaac. Question for you this morning, what's your Isaac? What is it? We all have it. The thing that you care about the most. The thing that you absolutely love the most. What's your Isaac? See, the test was meant to prove something. And what the test proved is that Abraham loved God more than Isaac. And Genesis 22 says, and he really loved Isaac. He just loved God more. But you also have to notice, when the angel of the Lord said, now I know that you fear God, the provision of God at that moment, it was revealed. It's been demonstrated. Your faith is real. Those that are around you watching this moment, they see it. You're going to do something that is going to bless generations beyond this generation. The people have already seen it. And now you see my provision. In that moment. Typically, if we're not careful spiritually, we like the order to go the other way. We like to see the provision and then we'll kind of bat around the idea of the obedience. Abraham says, I'm going to give you my obedience and I'll see your provision. Sometimes we don't have what God would have given us a long time ago because he's still waiting for us to give him our sacrifice. He's waiting. It reminds me of another example from these folks, the Israelites. You know, they have this moment, the wilderness wandering. We've talked about it before. This refers to the plight of the Israelites due to their disobedience and unbelief. And we were talking 3,500 years ago, the Lord delivers his people from Egyptian bondage which is described in Exodus chapters 1 through 12. They were to take possession of the land that God had promised their forefathers. You're going to go back home. 
You, you don't have to stay in Egypt or be scattered across the, the nations. Instead, they get to go to a place, it says, that is flowing with milk and honey in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. That just sounds good. A place that is flowing with milk and honey. I mean, you throw some Earl Grey tea in there and you got a London fog. This place sounds all right. Go to this place. However, prior to entry, they became convinced. They kind of get up there, they look around, and they're like, have you seen the army over there? These people are massive. They're massive. And they become convinced that they can't beat them. Even though God had already told them he would, they became convinced that it wasn't going to happen. And so their lack of belief, their lack of belief in God's word, I don't believe you, in God's promises, brought them a time where they get to go around the wilderness, and I don't mean for days, they go around the wilderness for 40 years. Think about it. What was meant to be a few-day journey to get back home, decades later, they're still walking around. And why is that? It's because God said, until the unbelieving generation dies off, you're not going back in. The people that will inhabit my place are the people whose faith and confidence are in me. It's more than about the land, in other words. The blessing was for those who believed him. The blessing were, were those who walked in faith, not those who didn't walk in faith but expected the blessing anyway. Tony Evans said it like this. I love it. Some years ago, he said, what this means is you can't hold on to Isaac and experience God's provision. You can't hold on to Isaac and experience God's provision. But you also see the result, and you see it in verses 16 through 18. Because you have done this thing and not withheld your only son, I'll indeed bless you. I'm going to bless you. And I'll make your offering as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Why? Because you obeyed me. Because you followed me. In other words, I'm going to give you back Isaac. And I'm going to give you back a lot more. Now, you can keep Isaac, lose everything else, or you can give Isaac and see God work in a way that changes generations of people. There's your options. And what Abraham showed in saying yes to God was that he loved God more than the blessings of God. I'm saying yes to you. More than the blessings of God. So what, what this story isn't trying to say is that you, like Abraham, follow God in faith so that you get the stuff. That's not it. Even though you see at the end of it, God giving incredible blessing to him. It's that you see a man that loves God and trusts him and sees his provision because of it. You remember verse 14? It says, Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. Maybe you're in a moment where you need to say something like, I'm fully confident that the Lord will provide. Even though you might be in a situation where you're being squeezed, I'm fully confident that the Lord will provide. It's not only that, he tells you where he provides. Mount Moriah. See, this is the place of worship for them. 
God provides in the worship. This, this site and this time in history, it's also the place of Solomon's temple. There's so much that's happened on this place, so much of incredible significance, but we experience his provision in our worship. That's where we experience it. But there is more, and it's well beyond Genesis chapter 22. Because if you look over at John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Now, this is a group of guys uh, that, you know, they didn't like him too much. That's probably the understatement of the morning. They didn't like Jesus. And as Jesus is talking, but just so you get an idea of how bad the situation is, in John chapter 8, verse 37, it says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, Jesus says to them, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. In other words, I know that you have this heritage from Abraham, uh, but I also know you don't like me because what I'm saying doesn't get you what you want. So you hate me. And then he goes on to say, you people are doing the deeds of your father. And they're saying they're going, well, our father's father, Abraham, had many sons. I mean, it didn't say that, but... Yeah, our father is Abraham. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're doing the deeds of your father. Verse 44, you people are from your father, the devil. That's probably not what they thought was coming. Fair enough? Your father is the devil. And you want to do whatever your father desires. What the devil desires is not good. And since their desires are lock and step with the devil, their desires weren't good. And he says, he, speaking of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. What did he just say? You guys are trying to murder me. The devil was a murderer from the start and he doesn't uphold the truth. There's no truth in him. So I know who your father is. Now at this moment, do you think that Jesus is making friends with this group or do you think that they're starting to get a little agitated? And then in verse 51, he looks at who are supposed to be the religious leaders, the teachers, the go-to folk, and he says, if anyone keeps my teaching, they will never see death. If they keep whose teaching? You say yours. If anyone keeps my teaching, they will never see death. And ooh, they didn't like it at all. Here's what they said. Oh, you're not, you're not greater than Abraham. I mean, after all, he died. Who do you claim to be? And then you see it in verse 56 of John chapter 8. He says, your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. He saw it. What? Abraham's been gone for a long time. What did he see? Where did he see it? I can tell you what Jesus was saying. He saw it on the mountain. Back in Genesis 22, on the mountain, while he is there with Isaac, Abraham saw a couple of things. One is that he saw God's immediate provision because they look, there's a ram in the thicket. Behold, God has provided. But while he's up there on the mountain, he looks and he sees something. It's like a glimpse or a snapshot into the future. And Jesus is saying, he saw it then and he rejoiced in what was going to happen because of me, the guy you're trying to kill. He rejoiced in it. Understand the background. Mount Moriah is not far, maybe 900 feet from Golgotha. About 900 feet, which is the place that Jesus was crucified. The people that looked in John chapter 8 look and they say that it's like almost like God opened up a portal so that for a moment Abraham could see God provides. 
Some of you came here this morning and you're in need of provision. Uh, those provisions could be emotional provisions, but those could also be spiritual provisions. You know, it reminded me, there was a guy that went into a pharmacy. Uh, he wasn't well off. He was, a, he was a poor guy. And he walks up to the pharmacist, you know, at the front, and he says, hey, can you, can you give me something for a bad cold? I just can't beat this thing. You know, and the pharmacist says, well, do you have a prescription or anything, you know, with you? And the guy says, um, no, but I brought my cold with me, and my cold needs to be cured. That's what I brought with me. Here's the question that I have for you this morning. What did you bring? What did you bring that needs to be cured? One of my favorite artists is Rembrandt Van Ryn. Some of you have probably seen his artwork. I have gone to some exhibits of his. Rembrandt Van Ryn saw life very differently from the time that he was young to the time that he was old. You have a number of portraits. Uh, he was absolutely brilliant. Two of the portraits that you have here, you have one on the left and you have the other on the right, that shows two different interpretations that he takes to the same story, which is the story of the prodigal son. The son who, after looking at his father and he says, I want you to give me my inheritance now, basically saying you're as good as dead to me. The only reason that I care for you, Father, is what it is that you can provide for me. So why don't you just go ahead and give me the cash because I don't care about you. And so he lets him go. The father breaks from tradition and sends the son out. Rembrandt, when he was younger, saw the story as like, man, what an amazing opportunity that is. You got the dad just like handing over gobs of cash to the kid and notice the kind of life that he can live. And so he paints himself, left picture, with a prostitute. He's, he's enjoying life, as Rembrandt said that he saw it. He was enjoying the spoils of a day. In fact, one of the things that we know about Rembrandt is it was often in his artwork that he would be the center of the artwork. He would paint himself in it because he was a part of the story that was being revealed. And this was the way that he saw it. What a great moment from a dad. Here's a boatload of cash, kid. Go on. If you don't want a relationship with me, you go. However, Rembrandt started to see things a little bit differently. By the way, so did the prodigal. So did the prodigal. But you notice a little bit later in life, Rembrandt paints what's called the return of the prodigal son. The son that after seeing the massive mistake that he had made, sits there and talks to himself what could I say to my dad to come back so that he would accept me, so that the community would accept me? You see two portraits. On the left, you see a young man. Notice that he has fine clothes. Notice that he's wearing his hat. Notice that he has a smile on his face. All of this, by the way, is before his life falls apart. Notice that he has this long flowing hair. And then look at the right. In the right, you have the son that's come back to the father knowing that he's undeserving of the relationship. After all, what he had told the father was, I don't want a relationship with you. I want your benefits, I just don't want you. And notice that in this case, as the son goes back, he doesn't even have both shoes on his feet. It's been a long journey. Notice that he doesn't even have any hair on his head left. 
Notice that there's no sword like you would see on the left side. There's no means of protection or provision. Notice that he's come back to the Father and he's kneeling at the feet of the Father. But also notice how the Father is receiving him. The Father has put his hands on the back of his son. And just like in the story of the return of the prodigal son, the Father was waiting for that the whole time. He was waiting to restore his son both to the family and to the community. But there's another piece of art from Rembrandt, and it's called The Three Crosses. And it's one of his more famous pieces of work. Those that really study Rembrandt say it may be his finest work that he ever did. And it's a little hard to make out, but if you look at it, your attention is meant to be drawn first to the center on the cross where Jesus died. It's the most pronounced part of the picture. And then as you would look at the crowd that's gathered around the foot of the cross, you become impressed by the various facial expressions of the people. You start to see the actions of the people involved in the awful crime of crucifying the Son of God. And then finally, and perhaps by design, and again, it's a little bit hard to see, but art critics will look at this and say, as you fan out into the crowd and over into the shadows, you see Rembrandt himself. Art critics say that this is a representation not just of Rembrandt, but the fact that he represented, he recognized that by his own sins, he had nailed Christ to the cross, that he was there. Peter Kraft, in thinking about Jesus' crucifixion, said this. He said, we sinned for no reason, but an incomprehensible lack of love. And he saved us for no reason, but an incomprehensible excess of love. For no reason. God sees and God provides. He sees and he provides. See, the, the greatest need that we have is to see the chasm that separates us from God, to first see it, and then to see his provision, which was his son. None of us deserved it, but all of us can receive it. That is a gracious God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides for you. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.